A'udhu Billah Samia Al-Alim Minash Shaitan Al-Ayin Al-Rajim Bismillah Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim In the name of God, most gracious, most merciful and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny Allahumma Our last gathering we talked a little bit about this question of whether it is a waste of time to try to come up with answers about religion in general and specifically about the existence of God. And we said that based on probability, based on the way human beings live, generally speaking, even if the probability is low for something but the reward can be very high, it's still worth doing. And on the other side, if even though the probability is very low on something but the risk is very high, you still avoid it. So just based on probability theory, it does not make sense for someone to just give up out of laziness and say, religion is, there's too much information, we're not sure if we're going to reach a conclusion or not, so let's just not waste time about any of that. So this was kind of a little bit of an introduction to the next topic that I decided not to start last week because we had an interesting conversation about probability and uh, the worthiness of spending time studying religion or not. So today, inshallah, we're going to start with the existence of God. The first question we have is whether there are actually any valid, proper proofs for the existence of God or not. So when we say valid proofs, it means that someone who thinks philosophically, someone who thinks based on correct logic, valid logic, without contradictions, without inconsistencies, in a coherent, cohesive manner. If you study the proofs for the existence of God, are there any of these proofs that are considered logically valid, philosophically valid or not? That's the first question. And the short answer, without going into too much detail, the short answer is yes. There are logically 100% accurate, valid proofs philosophically, logically, for the existence of God. How many proofs are there for the existence of God? Okay, there are a lot of proofs that can be used for the existence of God. They are usually lumped into categories. And there are probably seven or eight big categories of proofs, and under each one of them, there's different variations to each one of the proofs. Why are there so many different types of proofs for the existence of God? People are different. They have very different backgrounds. They have very different needs. People who have much more complex thinking, and it's not a, 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 a question of this is a good thing or a bad thing. It's just different. Some people are very complex in their thinking. They're very abstract in their thinking. And so they might need a different kind of proof to answer their questions and to satisfy them logically. There are people who are more interested in things that are they can see and hear and feel empirical and they want to rely on things that are more empirical to be satisfied of God's existence. And so they're going to go towards proofs that rely maybe more on science than on philosophy, for instance. So for us, I don't think that it makes sense to go through all the proofs for the existence of God. There are too many and a lot of them, to be properly understood, they require advanced notions and philosophy that we don't have time and it's not really relevant for us here. One of the categories for proving the existence of God is the one we can call the instinctive. 
it's without too much complication. How do we prove that? We've actually already presented this in previous lessons. We said that in the Holy Quran and in our narrations in Islam and even in our daily lives, we know that we do rely on some entity. We attach ourselves to some entity, especially when we are faced with extreme difficulties. We said the Holy Quran says, for instance, when you go out at sea, and you think that you're going to die because there's a storm that has hit you, then suddenly you start invoking and beseeching and crying out to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save you. And then the moment you are back to safety, you go back to worshipping whatever you were worshipping before. Right? There are multiple verses in the Quran that say that. We also already explained the story of the man who came to Imam al-Sadiq and who asked him, can you tell me, I've been hearing contradictory, confusing things from all sorts of people about God. Can you tell me what God is? And the Imam told him, have you ever been at sea and the ship that you were on got broken and you were going, you sunk and you had no more swimming that could save you or anyone to come and rescue you. Were you ever in that situation? And the man said, yes. He told him, did your heart attach itself to something? He said, yes. That hope that you can still maybe somehow survive. He told him, that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that moment. Okay, so that sometimes when we're not sure what Allah means, we feel distant, we feel that it's an abstract notion, that's the notion of Allah. When you're in a hopeless situation and you still have hope, that hope is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't come out of nothing. It's Allah who has put it in us. Instinctively, we turn to Him in those moments of difficulty. And we said that psychologically, a lot of psychologists have said that if you actually can go to the depths of the human soul, what you find is Allah, what you find is belief in God. Okay? All of this to say that the first easy, clear, instinctive proof for the existence of God is specifically the instinctive proof, the proof by instinct. It doesn't require any more explaining than that. We all should feel it in our lives. I don't need to spend 10 hours explaining what you can feel in a second and you know exactly what you're feeling. And everybody has gone to some extent in their lives. Everybody. And the more you live and the more you experience in life, especially difficulties or moments that lead you to be in that situation, the more you see it right away. But more than that, there's also a way to understand other proofs for the existence of God in an instinctive way. What do we mean? It's said that one day the Holy Prophet was with some of his companions and there was a woman sitting in the street and she had a sewing machine. Okay, we're 14 centuries ago. Obviously a very simple sewing machine, not like the electrical ones we have. A very mechanical machine. And the Holy Prophet asked her whether she believed in God in front of the companions. And she told him, of course I believe in God. I told her, how do you know? What's your argument for your belief? And that old woman told the Prophet, this little sewing machine in front of me does not move on its own if my hand does not move it. It needs my hand to move. So you want to tell me that these heavens and earth function the way they do without some hand that makes them work? So the Holy Prophet turned to his companions and he said very famous words. I don't know if you've heard them or not. The Holy Prophet said, عَلَيْكُمْ بِدِينِ الْعَجَائِزِ So 
It's like he's telling them, I advise you to have the same type of belief as you find in these old people. Because sometimes someone say, these old people, what do they know? They're simpletons, they're not educated, primitive minds. And yet, the Holy Prophet is saying, this is the truth. And she has such purity and such clarity in the way she thinks that she understood the very complex proofs that we're going to talk about, not today, but in the next lessons. She understood them very instinctively, very intuitively. So when we say there's an intuitive way to understand that there must be Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for people like that, for people to whom it's absolutely clear, obvious, evident, that there has to be a God to this world, to this universe, they don't need to look any further for themselves. That's it. It's clear enough and it stops there. What we need for ourselves is what satisfies our curiosity. We have to feel that we actually know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. We have to feel His presence and His existence. Whatever gets you there, that's enough. You don't need to spend 10 years studying philosophy if you can get there in 30 seconds or in one moment because of some experience you've had or because you realize something intuitively. But we're not the only ones that matter. So while we do have ourselves to care about, ourselves to worry about, and that's first and foremost, we shouldn't worry about anyone else until we've solved our own issues. Beyond that, we also have to think about others. If I live in a society, first of all, let's think about ourselves. If I live in a society where, you know what, I was brought up, I've heard my parents, I've heard the sheikh, I've read a couple of books, I've seen a couple of YouTube videos, and I'm convinced that, you know what, I'm good with my belief in God. Okay, I'm satisfied and happy. But what says, what guarantees that you're not going to hear something in a biology course, or you're not going to hear something in an anthropology course, or in a history course, or a philosophy course from a prof, that's not going to shake your foundation and your beliefs in two minutes. And suddenly you're not so sure that everything you believed in makes sense anymore. What gives you that guarantee? What tells you that you can actually listen to any speaker and read any book and watch any show and at the end you still have your faith? The way to do that is by equipping yourself. If you want to be one of those people who wants to be open to the world and understand what's going on and still maintain your faith and your belief because you think it is the right thing, then you have to go and equip yourself, arm yourself with the intellectual tools you need. You cannot pretend that the things that are being said are not being said. You have to have an answer to those things. So while I may be convinced that when this woman said that sewing machine needs a hand, that works for her and it works for me. But I know in today's society that's not going to be a sufficient answer. And if I want to sound serious and if I want to represent my faith, my religion properly, that's not going to be an, a sufficient answer. I'm going to have to go see what else can I use. Maybe that's not what I need. But then there's a duty that's beyond me that I, I have to keep in mind. Even for myself, for my reputation. If I want people to say, what does he know? He's someone who follows his faith blindly. He doesn't know anything. He's not rational, reasonable. He's not a thinker. He's not objective. Okay, so that's one thing. The second thing is, what about other people? What about the people you care about in life? What about your younger siblings? What about the children you will have one day? 
And what about people in general? Do you, if you think that you have a truth, if you think that you have something beneficial, if you think that you have something valid that can change the way someone views the world, that can change the way someone lives their life, and that can change their eternal life, do you not want to help them out? Do you not want to share something with them to help them out? And you get a reward out of helping them out. And this is the collective duty. But if I don't know what's being said, if I do not know, for instance, in the case of the proofs for the existence of God, if I don't know the proofs, if I don't know which ones are strong and which ones are weak, if I don't know what objections have been said and what criticisms have been said and which ones are actually correct and which ones are incorrect, how am I supposed to go into that world? How am I supposed to teach my children? How am I supposed to answer when people I care about say, it doesn't work for me, I don't believe in God, and then it stops there. So this is more of the collective duty. As a Muslim, you have a collective duty. It's always there. But we can't talk with anyone about their collective duty if they haven't equipped themselves and protected themselves first. That's why we said we have to worry about, about ourselves first. We have to make sure that we are convinced that our main questions have been answered, our main objections, our main doubts have been answered. Okay? And now let's go see what else is out there that we need to understand so that we can actually live in these societies, especially at a time when atheism is on the rise, when science is becoming scientism and the new religion. And if you don't have proofs, you're considered someone who's not really a strong thinker and you're not objective and you're just a blind follower of religion. And what do you know? That's a big general introduction to all this topic. Now we have two big other categories of proofs that we want to explore a little bit further. The proofs for the existence of God fall in two categories. One of them is the proofs that are entirely rational or entirely philosophical. The other type of proofs are the ones that combine reason with empirical data. Data that comes, for instance, from science. Data that comes from the world. Science on its own cannot prove the existence of God. Why? Because science is only observing the world. You study the natural world. The moment you want to extract a conclusion from that, from your observations, from your study, the moment you do that, you're now in the realm of reason. Science doesn't have the tools to go outside. So now you're in reason or you know, people usually refer to that as philosophy. So we're going to start with the more abstract proof. The proof for the existence of God that's usually called the proof of the necessary being. Okay? Once this is understood, this is a very important, very powerful proof to understand. Once you understand it, you see that it's, it falls into place very easily and it solves a lot of issues. Once that proof is understood, and we all agree, everybody here agrees that we understood it well, we move to a simpler, easier proof that is more for the commoners. We're going to start with the tougher one so that we get the tough one out of the way. Okay? The proof of the necessary being. So everybody understands what necessary means? Not with the proof, just the word. We know what necessary means, right? It has to be. Necessary, necessity means something that has to be. Okay. We're now in the mental world, okay? We're only in the intellectual world, in our mind. When we think about something, anything, it can fall into three categories. 
either the thing is impossible, either the thing is possible, either the thing is necessary. Examples. If I think about an apple, can an apple be red? Yes. Can an apple be yellow? Yes. Okay, so those are possible. Anything I think about? Three things. Possible, impossible, necessary. That's a possible. Let's go necessary. If I see something that is made up of parts, and I say the whole is bigger than the parts, is that possible or impossible or necessary? It's necessary. Can the whole be smaller than the parts? No. So if I say the whole is smaller than the parts, what is it? Impossible. Okay, so we've all encountered in our lives instances of things that are possible, impossible, <coughs> and necessary. Necessary means logically necessary. means it has to be this way. It doesn't make sense to say, for instance, the son was born before the father. Right? That's an impossible relationship. This is in our mental world. Now let's go into the real world. In the real world, do we also have the three types of relationships? No. Because impossible things cannot exist. We make them exist in our mind. So already there are no impossibles in the real world. What are we left with? The two options that are left, things are possible or necessary. When we look at everything, Everything we could think of that we see in the world falls in the category of the possible. Why? The question that we ask about anything we see is, does it necessarily have to be this way? Could it be different from what we see? It could be. Anything yet you think of. Yourself, the planet, the galaxy, the universe. Okay, let's take it one step further. Let's talk about its existence. Everything that you see, everything that you could think of that exists in the world, does it have to exist? No. Is there anything in the world that has to exist? No. No. Why? When we say necessity, there's two types of necessary, necessary things, okay? One type of necessity is when you think or when you look at a, a thing in itself. I look at this in itself. The other type of necessity is you look at relationships, okay? Now, if for this to exist, I need five elements, I need five causes to come together in a certain way, if they do, this has to be here. This is a logical necessity. Okay? But it's a necessity not because this has to exist on its own. It's only logically necessary that if all the conditions for something are present, then something is present. And the opposite. You can take something and say, say if this is here, then it must necessarily mean that its conditions happen. 
It goes both ways, the relationship, right? That's called a logical necessity, but this is a relational one. We're not talking about that. We don't need... Now we're talking about the entities in the world. Is there any entity in the world? Is there anything, a being, an existent in the world that necessarily needs to exist? That has to exist? That we could never imagine not existing? Everything for it to exist relies on something else to make it exist. Because it is not necessary. If we look at every entity in the world, none of them fall in the category of this must exist. There is no must. So nothing has to exist. Nothing has to exist. Everything we look at, we can say, this doesn't need to exist. We could imagine a world where this doesn't exist, and it's fine. Okay. Which means what? So in philosophy, Which means there's, one there's that... possible. This is called a possible being in our normal way of talking. In philosophy, because you need that term, I'm going to use it, it's called contingent. Contingent means it's only possible. Depending on the circumstances, anything that's called contingent, depending on the circumstances, it may be and it may not be. It may exist, it may not exist. It may be this way, it may be that way. It's contingent. Anything in your life. It varies according to the circumstances around it. It means it relies on other things to exist. Depending on things outside of it. It depends. There's a dependency. There's a reliance. There's a causality. Something causes it or does not cause it to exist. Everything we have in the world falls in this category. Contingent. Everything is contingent. Another way to understand it, I'm going to take you just a little bit more abstract, okay? When we say something is only possible or contingent, imagine there is a continuum. On one side, we have non-existence. On one side, we have existence. Okay? If I have something that's contingent, it's basically in limbo between the two. It doesn't exist, and it doesn't not exist. It's in limbo. It could exist. It may exist at a time. It may exist one day. But today it doesn't. We can't say it exists. It's in limbo. Between non-existence and existence. Anything that's possible, anything that's contingent, needs something outside of itself to push it one way or another outside of itself to push it either into non-existence or into existence. Otherwise, it doesn't come to exist. Why does it exist instead of not existing? If it's only possible. If something is only possible. It's not necessary. I could imagine that it doesn't exist, so why does it exist? Something pushed it from that state of limbo of being only possible to existence. Okay. Keeping all of that in mind, now let's come to the world. And we ask, where does everything come from? Everything comes from something before it, because everything is contingent. Everything was pushed into existence at some point by something other than itself. 
Okay, that's part one. Part two. Okay, so what's the problem with that? The problem with that is if you keep going back, you have to say at some point, something must have triggered the whole chain. Otherwise, you have to keep going back ad infinitum, infinitely into the past, always asking, but what caused that one? Okay, but what caused that one? Okay, so what's the problem with going back to infinity? The problem is if you go back to infinity, means you never stop, you never reach a stop to this chain, you can never have something that exists today. This is called infinite regress. So let's take an example, because the notion of infinity is a little abstract. Let's take an example. There's a line. There are five people standing on the line. They want to race. There's one condition that they have all put on themselves, which is I don't start running until the, the person beside me runs. I don't exist until the thing before me makes me exist. I don't run until the one beside me runs. All of them say that. When the uh, race starts, is any one of them going to run? No. That's a problem. So if you know that that was the condition, if you know that there's a race, and there are people who said, I do not start running until this person beside me starts running. We weren't there to see them at the beginning of the race, okay? You're standing later, and you see, you see them actually running. What do you say? Somebody has to start running. Something must have happened to break that cycle for them to actually start running. Yeah, I see. So there has to be one thing that's not contingent for everything else to actually work being contingent. So if in the world we only have two possibilities, not in our mind, in the real world, there are only two possibilities, which are Possible or contingent or necessary. necessary. Then that thing must be necessary. It cannot be one of those things that have to be pushed into existence from the outside. It must be something that exists necessarily. It cannot not exist. Why? Because there's all sorts of stuff that exists. For everything else to exist, that thing must have existed. Necessarily existed. We cannot imagine a world where that did not exist. Because everything in the world is only contingent. Everything in the world is only possible. So we could imagine the world with that thing not in it. We can do that with the entire universe and say, why is there something instead of nothing? Good question. But the problem is there is something. And that's why there are so many scientists now trying to show that there can be something out of nothing. Because they're stuck. So long as they're stuck with this problem, logically there is an issue. Anyways, putting that aside, let's go back to the proof. So the proof for the necessary being, in other words, the proof for God, that's proof number one, after the intuitive proofs, is what? It's everything in the world is either contingent or necessary. But if everything is only contingent, then nothing could ever exist. If something exists, 
then a necessary being must have caused it to exist. And that necessary being, we call it God. That's, in summary, the proof. Now, we talked a lot about causality and necessity and possibility, but in summary, that's the entire proof. This is a valid, strong, philosophical proof for the existence of God. Unless someone can prove to you that something can come out of nothing, that proof is always going to be valid. I want to add one more thing. The answer has already been said, but I want to make sure none of you guys fall into this mistake. Everybody must have heard this mistake, must have heard this question again and again. The question is, if everything needs a cause, then God needs a cause. So what caused God? Is this question valid or not? And if it's not, why is it not valid? I was thinking that, but once you get the necessary, necessary is not contingent. Everything else is contingent. So say it in a way that's correct. If he's contingent, then every every other contingent thing won't be contingent. We'll still need. Because he can't make contingent can't make a contingent not contingent. True. True. It's invalid because he's born in infinite resurrection. True. I want someone to say the statement properly. So the statement, the mistaken statement, is everything needs a cause. Does everything need a cause? No, not not, not, the, not the thing that makes a cause for everything. So say it in a correct way. So it's not everything needs a cause. It's every contingent thing needs a cause. Every possible thing needs a cause. A necessary thing does not need a cause. Only contingent things need a cause. So if you say every contingent thing needs a cause, you can't ask me why does God need a cause? Where is the cause for God? God is not contingent. The necessary being is not contingent. You go back to the proof. Explain to me how is there something instead of nothing. There must be a necessary being. So I think we'll stop here. I think the proof is clear to everybody. The next time we'll talk... We'll try to see what this proof can mean more. What else can we take out of this proof? If we say that God is a necessary being, what else can we learn about God just by saying that He is a necessary being? There is a strength and a weakness to this proof. The strength of this proof is that philosophically it's very strong. Everybody who understands these terms intuitively will understand what we're saying. Now someone is going to be stubborn and argue that there can be something out of nothing. Okay? So up to you to decide how to deal with that. But some people are going to argue that there can be something out of nothing. I don't know if they've ever encountered that in their lives, but they say there can be something out of nothing. Entire books are being written by some of the biggest minds in science, like Lawrence Krauss and others, who are writing... Why is there a universe, basically? A universe, is his, one of his most recent books was called Universe Out of Nothing. And he's trying to show how the universe could have started out of nothing. It's a pretty thick book, but at the end he doesn't say how. Okay? <laughs> and you can go and read it and tell me if you see how he's saying that the universe actually started out of nothing. And there's many others. 
I'm just trying to figure out how they can... <laughs> There's a lot of theoretical and, and practical <laughs> physics being done right now to trigger energy, to trigger a spark, to trigger uh, an electron out of nothing. They create circumstances which they are defining as nothing and something is sparking in the vacuum that they're creating. Their conditions are the things that are causing it. So keep that in mind when you read the... Anyways. So, the strength of this is that philosophically, logically, it's a valid proof. Okay? So if you understand this proof, you don't even need to go anywhere else. With this proof, you prove the existence of God that He not only exists, but He must exist. He exists necessarily. The moment there is anything else that exists, it means He must exist necessarily. And we're going to talk more about what, that, what else that means. The next time we'll talk about this. Okay? The weakness of this argument. The weakness of this argument is simply that it only proves the existence of God. It doesn't prove His attributes. So we cannot say, therefore God is powerful, and therefore God is knowledgeable, and therefore God is wise and merciful. No. For those other attributes, we're going to have to provide other proofs for each one of them. To show, so how do we prove that the necessary being is also powerful? How do we prove that the necessary being also has knowledge? Or is just, this is going to be different proofs. Inshallah, when we're done with this proof, we're going to go into another proof, and that one you'll see that it's not only going to prove the existence of God, but it's also going to prove some of His attributes at the same time. Okay? So that's the strength and the weakness of this proof. So if I'm arguing with someone and I'm arguing about divine justice, because some people say God is evil, God is not just, I can't use this proof. This proof is not going to help me. But if I'm arguing with someone who wants to say God exists or God doesn't exist, this proof can help me. Yes? It's such a logical argument. How, how do people not believe it? How can it be missed? <laughs> yeah, like how do people just ignore this? It's not that they ignore it. It's because if it's not presented properly, like I just did, <laughs> it's very easy to attack it. And um, that's why I said I don't, I don't think any of you guys haven't heard at some point if God started everything, if God, is, if God is the cause of everything, then what caused God? And what's the answer? So if you don't have these tools, you're stuck. You're okay. You know, God doesn't need, but you don't know what. Now you have the notions. Now you understand the difference between necessity and possibility or contingency. Everything else is contingent. Of course it needs a cause. But if everything is contingent, nothing could ever exist. If everything is only possible, nothing could ever exist. If something exists, there must be a necessary being. That is not part of this loop. And if you want to say that being is also contingent, then we go back to the same, the same situation, the same logic. We say, okay, to avoid infinite regress, that being needs a necessary being. So we're not talking about God. We have to keep going back. That's it. صلوا على محمد وآل محمد.